Hello and welcome to Profiles. I'm Murray McGibbon. On Profiles, we interview notable artists, writers, politicians, academics, and movers and shakers in the world who have connections to southern Indiana. Today we have the pleasure of speaking to a theatre artist, teacher, and scholar, indeed an all-round theatre renaissance woman. She is Liza Gennaro. Liza, welcome to Profiles. Hello, thank you so much for having me. So let's start at the beginning. You were born into an esteemed theatrical family. Your father, Peter, was a legendary and world-famous dancer and choreographer, and your mother was also a performer. How did you come to be given the name Liza? (laughs) Well, my father, um, the story goes, my father was working with Judy Garland at the time, and he was uh, the choreographer on her variety show. And through knowing her and working with her, they heard the name Liza, and they decided they liked the name, and I got it. (laughs) So it must have been quite thrilling growing up in a theatrical family in New York City. Can you share some memorable experiences or people, other people that you met? Yeah, I mean, the, the thing about growing up with a parent that's a celebrity is that, you know, you're a kid and you're not aware of the celebrity status. It's just your parents. What's wonderful about it is that I was surrounded with art. I was taken to the theater extensively, the ballet. Um, We had a wonderful library of books. My mother received Vogue and Harper's Bazaar and Women's Wear Daily, and fashion was such a big topic in the family. And they're visual artists, so the visual aspects of everything you could possibly look at was just constantly around me. And my mother was a wonderful interior designer. So it was those are the things that coming from a theatrical family that for me really had the greatest impact rather than who was around necessarily. Because my father did very much keep his business life away from us in that sense. I was not dragged around to rehearsals unlike myself, who dragged my daughter around with me to lots of rehearsals. But I was not, as a child, dragged around to rehearsals. And we sometimes would have people coming over to the house, but not particularly. The better, the, the, the greatest thing about it was the fact that I was surrounded with so much art and saw so much wonderful dance at an early age and has really, those are things that have really informed my life and career. Your father really was quite a remarkable man, and I'm sure lots of our listeners will know of his work, Mm -hmm. even if they don't know terribly much about him. Can you tell us a little bit about his Mm -hmm. professional career, and also what kind of a chap was he? Well, he was raised in New Orleans, uh, Louisiana. He was the child of Sicilian immigrants, um, first generation, and his father couldn't Right. The family was successful. They had a bar in um, New Orleans, in Metairie, in which my father served as a bartender as a young man, but my father also danced in the bar. They created a little stage for him to perform. As a tiny child during the Depression, when he was like two years old, my grandmother would take him around to competitions, dance competitions, Charleston competitions, where he would perform and he would always win. So he'd win a set of plates or whatever they were giving all out at the time. So he had My father really came out of the womb dancing. He just had an innate talent, which he was encouraged really just by the place that he lived, which was, you know, the home of American jazz. So he was constantly surrounded um, by the sounds of jazz in the French Quarter and would follow the jazz funerals and dance with the jazz funerals. That was really his early training. And then when he went into, he went into, volunteered for World War II and went overseas, ended up in India and became a member of a uh, performing troupe and went all around, traveled all around India, India, setting up stages and performing for the troops. So when he got back to the States, he went on the GI Bill to the Catherine Dunham School. Of course, Catherine Dunham is a wonderful anthropologist, did her field studies in Haiti, came back to the States and created a company and a phenomenal school in New York where she trained dancers, actors. Marlon Brando was there, Harry Belafonte, all kinds of fantastic people. And my father studied there with her extensively and then got into the San Carlo Opera Company, 
which was based in Chicago, which is where he met my mother. My mother was in the company as well. And they courted, it was a very brief courtship, maybe six months, and then they got married and they moved to New York. So that was really my father's track in terms of his training. They moved back to New Orleans at one point, and my mother insisted that he take ballet because my mother had been a ballet dancer. And that kind of gave him the finish and finesse as a dancer. And then they went back to New York, and he started working on Broadway and had an extensive performing career and then ultimately a choreographic career as well and and choreographed a lot of television. So he was on the Ed Sullivan Show and the Perry Como Show and the Craft Musical Call and all those wonderful um, variety shows of the 1960s and 70s. So as I developed as a dancer, I started initially in classical ballet and my, I'm small, and I don't really have a ballet dancer's body, and ballet requires such specific things in terms of the length of the leg and the line of the foot and on and on. And I studied exclusively ballet until I was 16, and then I began to transition out of ballet and moved into musical theater dancing and tap and all different kinds of dance forms. And I eventually ended up assisting my father. That was my early apprenticeship as a choreographer. So that was, I was very, just very lucky to have had that opportunity working with him. And that kind of launched my career as a choreographer. Speak about some of his major choreographic triumphs. The one that is little, well, it's known, but um, it was kept kind of secret for many, many years. He was the co-choreographer on West Side Story. So Jerome Robbins, who created and choreographed the show, did all of the Jets choreography and had known my father from Pajama Game. Uh, My father was the original, one of the original three steam heat dancers. And then Bells Are Ringing, and my father played a role in that show uh, in which he performed with Judy Holliday, the muchacha number. And Robbins was on both of those shows and was watching my father very closely. He went on, he, he asked my father to work with him on West Side Story and asked my father to assist him. And my father, for whatever reason, my father had the guts to ask, said, well, I'm not interested in assisting you, but I'd be interested in co-choreographing. <laughs> and Robin said, yes, sure. So he co-choreographed the show and choreographed all the, the shark dances and worked very closely with Cheetah Rivera. And Robbins kept it very quiet. My father signed off on a uh, contract in which he gave all rights away, all gave it all to Robbins. You know, he was young. He had a family. He needed the money, I'm sure, and he wanted to do the show. When Sheeta did her one-woman show, she acknowledged my father as the choreographer of all of her material in West Side Story, the shark dances. So that was really a lovely nod. And now, in a lot of the musical theater writing that's being done now, which is you know fairly new, there hasn't been a lot of in-depth, particularly in terms of choreography, writing about musical theater dance. There are lots of people writing about people who were written out of the history of musicals and my father being one of them. So it's now coming out more in the public eye that he actually was the co-choreographer. So that's nice. He also choreographed Annie, which he won the Tony Award for, which was uh, kind of funny that he won it for that show because it uh, doesn't have that much dancing in it, but lots of musical staging. And um, he choreographed The Unsinkable Molly Brown, which he also choreographed the film He choreographed Fiorello, which uh, won a Pulitzer, written by Sheldon Harnick and Jerry Bach. Um, So he had a a really wonderful career on Broadway, both as a performer and a choreographer. Oh, that's a fascinating story. You must be a terrific walking encyclopedia (laughs) for people who are now writing about. And we'll get to some of your writing a little bit later in the program. But uh, you told me the other day that you'd started working at about the age of nine and that you'd attended the professional children's school in Manhattan. How did you benefit from going to that school, and and were there any drawbacks in specializing so young? Yes. The professional children's school, I started there in high school, and at that time, and I think still, it was largely ballet dancers, largely women, female ballet dancers who were there training at either School of American Ballet, Ballet Theater, or the Joffrey School. 
And I remember my senior year, we would all go in for, I guess, like an 850 class. And at 930, the entire class would stand up and leave the classroom to go to a 10 o'clock ballet class. So the school was catered towards getting you out of your academic studies and into whatever your professional focus was. That had its drawbacks. A lot of my work as a high school student was done on what they referred to as correspondence. So I would meet with a teacher, you know, once a week, once every two weeks, and then go off and do the work on my own. At the time, you know, it was fine because I was so involved in my training. Looking back, I wish that I had had a more traditional high school experience. And it was not very weak socially because everybody just dispersed and went their own way. There was no community in the school. I think that has changed, and the school has found ways now to bring the students more together. But when I was there in the 70s, it was really, you were really on your own. So that was a little bit, uh, you know, I, I, I regret that I didn't have a more traditional high school experience. And then I did not go directly to college. I worked immediately right out of um, high school and then went back to college much, much later. So my academics, I always do feel that I wish I had a more traditional route. However, if I had, I wouldn't have gotten a lot of what I do have in terms of my professional experiences. So, You transitioned into choreography from performance, as you mentioned a little earlier. How difficult was that, switching from being a performer and in the limelight to being somebody who's relatively invisible? Yes, at best invisible. That's true. You want to try to be invisible as a choreographer, especially as a musical theater choreographer. You know, for me, performing was not a great lure. I didn't love to perform. I, I think I was a perfectly fine performer. I was an excellent dancer, but I didn't necessarily need to get up in front of people on a stage and do it. While I did do a lot of it, I never was that driven. So for me, I started to realize that my happiest time working on a show was when I was sitting out in the dark in the house watching the technical rehearsals and watching the rehearsals. So it made me start to think, you know, maybe this is where I need to be. And I did begin uh, assisting choreographers, which is pretty much the traditional track to becoming a musical theater choreographer. And then I would be dance captain on the show, which is the person who keeps the show clean, who keeps the dances clean, who does the rehearsals, who put, does the put-in rehearsals if there are replacements. So I started taking on that role and assisted a bunch of different people. And then my father reached a point in his career where he really needed somebody. He was My father had a very serious hearing loss from after the war. It was not war-related. I think he had had scarlet fever as a child, and it was the results of scar tissue from that. But in one year, ear, he was completely deaf, and in the other ear, he only had partial hearing. So he wore a hearing aid. And it's kind of amazing that he had such a uh, really successful career as a dancer, People knew about it, but it was never considered. He never considered it as a handicap. It was just he just ignored it. He just did it. Did what he needed to do. So when he needed a new assistant, I was the perfect person because I could do the job, and at the same time, he could have a very high level of trust with me, and I could be his ears as well as his body was as he was aging and I had the younger dance body. So it worked out. It was a very happy collaboration for quite a few years. Laza, you trained with the American Dance Machine. What was that and what did the training consist of? Yes, the American Dance Machine was a company that was formed in the late 1970s by a woman named Lee Theodore, who uh, maiden name was Lee Becker. She had been the original anybody's in the original company of West Side Story and had a very long and successful career as a performer on Broadway as well as a choreographer. She formed the company in order to preserve dances of the golden era of the American musical. So she created a company and she trained all of us in the different movement vocabularies required in musical theater. And then she found recreators, reconstructionists, who came in and worked with us and taught dances. So, for instance, we learned 
from the original production of Carousel. Agnes DeMille came in and her primary repetiteur, Jemsey DeLapp, came in and taught us June is Busting Out All Over. From uh, Brigadoon, we were taught and performed Come to Me, Bend to Me. And there were some other DeMille dances, a funeral dance also from Brigadoon. And these choreographers who were some of them not choreographing anymore, they were quite elderly, would come in and work with this young group of dancers. And just to hear Agnes DeMille talk about her dances and talk about the imagery so that Jemsey would teach us the steps, but then Miss DeMille would direct us, basically, and would direct us in all of these different incredible imagery that would just bring the movement to life. That was a fantastic training experience for me. It also enabled me and trained me to then go on to work with Michael Kidd, who is a wonderful choreographer, choreographed original Guys and Dolls, choreographed, people may know, the film Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, which has some great, phenomenal dances in it. And he choreographed a company of Music Man, which after my... I must have been with Dance Machine for about three years and then auditioned for Michael Kidd and went out and did a nine-month tour with uh, The Music Man starring Dick Van Dyke, which was also spectacular, phenomenal dances that we did eight shows a week, and my knees have never been the same. (laughs) But it was a great, great experience. Also with Dance Machine, we recreated a dance called Satin Doll, which had been choreographed by... Carol Haney, who was Gene Kelly's assistant in Hollywood and then also worked a lot with Jack Cole, who was one of the primary choreographers of the period of musical theater dance in in jazz dance, kind of developed his own style of jazz dance. And that was a great number because I was brought in at that point to go into you know, we went to some television studio where they had this piece of film. It had been done on, I don't know if it was the Perry Como show or what it had been done on, this trio dance. And a couple of the dancers were brought in and we all stood and watched it and took it off of the tape. So that was a great experience as well. It was the process of recreating these dances that Jerome Robbins used when he did his Jerome Robbins Broadway, the recreation of his body of musical theater choreography. And Lee was really, Lee Theodore was really, had done it before him. Robbins, being Robbins, never did let us do any of his work. I think he had the idea, well, I'm going to do my own when I'm ready. But we did work on um, with some other really wonderful choreographers, including Bob Fosse. Um, we did also do some of my father's choreography from Molly Brown and something from Fiorello. It was great because it was a enormous, diverse kinds of dance. It was an enormous diversity of dance. So I was in... I was really the workhorse of the company, and I was in every single number. And I would go on stage and do the opening number, which was from George M. It was called Popularity from by a choreographer named Joe Layton. And I'd run off, change my clothes in a second, and come back on in tap shoes and do a tap number from George M. And then I'd run off, and then I'd come back on in bare feet and do Come to Me, Bend to Me, which was DeMille. And it was just, you know, nonstop. And at night, I would just, you know, lie down with my feet up and... That training of having to switch back and forth that fast between all those different styles was just a a phenomenal training. And something I try to do with my students to give them all those different kinds of styles of dance. Well, it's time for our first music selection, and I'm interested to know what you've brought along with you. I brought along um, several different pieces of music. I tried to bring kind of an eclectic uh, batch I believe the first one is Mama Don't Dance, which is a Loggins and Messina. It's something that I use in my classes to teach to. It's I love it because it's incredibly great to dance to.
door because your mama don't dance and your daddy don't rock and roll. You're listening to Profiles on WFIU, and our guest today is Liza Gennaro. I'm Murray McGibbon. Liza, you've worked with some truly great directors, Garland Wright, Howard Ashman, John Dexter, and many others. Could you talk about some of their work and how it affected you and stimulated you? Yes. As a choreographer, my primary collaboration I'm working on a show is with the director. And when you have a director that you can really connect to, it's just such a happy experience. Uh, Garland Wright, who ran the Guthrie Theater for many years in Minneapolis and is no longer with us, sadly passed away several years ago, was a truly brilliant director. He had an incredible visual sense and was intensely creative, not just as a director and in his working with the actors, but when I worked with him on musicals and I did a Babes in Arms with him, I also did an Anything Goes with him, which I was the assistant choreographer on, but then did Babes in Arms with him, which I choreographed. And he was very hands-on with me. He was very much able to almost dictate which what he wanted, which is not something that I normally would like, but the fact that he was so in tune with me or I was so in tune with him, he was able to be super specific with me about what he wanted, and he pretty much had the complete set design before I came in, which is also a way that I don't like to work. But with him, I was able to do it because... We did so much see eye to eye in terms of what we were trying to say. And aesthetically, I think we were very much in alignment. So I loved working with him. He was very reserved. He kept very much to himself. However, in the rehearsal room, I found him very generous and very uh, useful in terms of his notes. The person that I probably had the closest working relationship with was Jerry Gutierrez, who also sadly is no longer with us. He won two consecutive Tonys. He was a really brilliant director, came out of Juilliard, and I had worked with him first with my father, choreographed a show that we did in Dallas called Lucky Guy, which I was the assistant on. And then he asked my father to do something else. And this is really what launched my career as a choreographer. My father was unavailable and it was up at Goodspeed Opera House. And my father said, well, why don't you use Liza? You know Liza. And so Jerry said, okay, well, we'll try her. And it was, as I said, the most happy fella. And it ended up moving from Goodspeed to Broadway. It was a very successful production. And again, we saw really eye to eye. We also became very close friends, which just makes the relationship easier. And he was had the ability to mine a script, even on a musical. And musicals, sometimes there's not a lot of depth once you start kind of digging into who these people are and the character and what's going on in the moment. But with a show like Happy Fellow, which was written by Frank Lesser and really had a wonderful book, Jerry was really able to reinvent that show in a way that it had not been seen before. He also chose to cut down the orchestration to a two-piano version, which Lesser, before he had passed away, had orchestrated, had written out this two-piano version. So it was straight from the composer. And that made the show also pulled it way down for the tiny little Goodspeed Opera House. Um, And then when we went to New York, we went into the booth, which is also one of the smaller theaters. So that that was a lovely experience and a great learning experience for me because of the way I watched Jerry pick those scenes apart or pick those songs apart in the musical numbers that he staged and how he was able to really change what was happening. For instance... The character of Rosabella, who is usually played as the kind of young, innocent, kind of ingenue, and then her counterpart, Cleo, who's the comic lead, is usually played as the tough, kind of smoking, fast-talking one. Jerry's flipped that so that he made Rosabella the harder one, the one who'd kind of been around. 
and he made Cleo the kind of innocent, goofy one. And that was kind of a revelation to that show and really um, gave that show, which had been one of the big musical theater war horses that was hard to produce. It was so big and it was it was just kind of a heavy show. He he made it very uh, producible. So it gave it that gave that show a really great life, new life, fresh life. I also had the opportunity to work with John Dexter, who was a um, British director, very well known, worked with Laurence Olivier and on and on, lots of fantastic credits. I was assistant, again, to my father on a production of Three Penny Opera starring Sting, <laughs> which was very interesting. Dexter was towards the end of his life. I don't think he was at his absolute best, but he was he was still very, very interesting, again, for the risks and chances that he would take. He kind of left the actors alone more than I had seen in the past with other directors, but he hired excellent people who didn't need a lot of help, and then he kind of just guided the whole production. He was really interesting to work with as well. So I feel like I had a really great opportunity to work with people that I really was able to learn from very early on in my career and has really set me up quite beautifully in terms of working with lots of other people now. And as a choreographer, a musical theater choreographer, you also have to have a lot of director in you because when you're staging, blocking, working on a musical theater number, a song, you're basically directing the song. So you have to have that kind of knowledge and that kind of expertise and ability to talk to actors who are highly sensitive as well. They should be. What they do is very difficult. And to find ways to uh, help them understand what how you see the, ro- the role of what they're doing as well as listen to what they want to do. And that was something that I really learned very good lessons from all those great directors that I had a chance to work with. You mentioned Howard Ashman uh, as having worked with him. Now, if memory serves me correctly, he got his degree from Indiana University. That's right. And has gone on to become a major world star. That's right. Talk a little bit about him. And I hadn't known that about Howard. I had worked with him on Smile, which he wrote with Marvin Hamlish in, I guess it was around 1984, 85. And he had just done Little Shop of Horrors, which I believe he... um, began here at IU and had had enormous success with that and then was in New York and came up with this musicalized adaptation of the film Smile, which is about a teenage beauty pageant and was very kind of dark and edgy and this really, you know, strong commentary on the whole beauty pageant industry. And it was a terrific really fun score, good show. We did it as a workshop. It got immediate interest, moved to Broadway, and was not particularly successful on Broadway. I think that the risks they had taken in the workshop toward the edginess and darkness of the show, they did not take on Broadway because producers were pushing them towards something else, and it was the 80s and It was just they were trying to do something fluffier, I think, than what the show really was. But right after that, Howard went out to Los Angeles and did Little Mermaid and, you know, started the entire Disney cartoon animation empire again, reinvented that, really. Quite an extraordinary career. Yeah. Anyway, let's get back to you. After the birth of your daughter, you went on to do an MA in dance studies. What led you back to academia? Well, uh, my daughter, Fiona, is 21, and when I had her, I was actually working on that Babes in Arms with Garland Wright when I had her, and around that period of time, it became very difficult to be dragging a nine-month-old around to be with me in Minneapolis for two and a half months. And I always wanted to go to college, and I had not at that point. I had kind of chipped away at my degree over the years. I'd take a course here and there. So I went to Empire State College in New York, which gives an enormous amount of life experience credits. And I finished off my degree very quickly and then went to NYU where I was at the Gallatin School and created where you can create your own 
program, your own degree, and did a degree in dance studies. It was a very exciting and interesting time for me. I knew about dance from the professional side and from the doing it side and from having lived in a family that did it for their entire lives, but I had never really studied it academically other than what I had done, which was always was at you know, spent enormous amount of hours always at Lincoln Center Library looking at films and tapes and reading. But I had never done it under any kind of guidance. So that was what I really wanted to do because I started to think that I was wanting to write about dance. I started to feel like I wanted to teach more. I had been teaching a bit, and I knew that I could get better jobs, especially in the New York area. It's so competitive to get anything that I really needed to have the degrees. So I did. I went back, and it took me... My daughter was little. It took me a little longer than probably it should have. I think it took me three years to get it. And it stood me very well because then I was teaching at Barnard College after that and Hofstra University and Princeton. And I was adjuncting everywhere and was able to develop a course in which I do a history of musical theater dance starting in kind of late 19th century and moving to the present. And at the same, while I'm doing the academic side of it and I'm doing the history side of it then getting everybody on their feet and then we move and we start dancing and putting the information on our bodies so it was a course that was interesting to a lot of schools because it combined the two sort of disciplines of how to look at dance I know that you're on the executive committees of a number of national bodies like the Society of Stage Directors and Choreographers but that you're also on the nominating committee of the Tony Awards. That must be quite an exciting job. Tell us how you came to get onto that board and what does it entail? Yeah, that's been a lot of fun. I was chosen to be on the nominating committee because they pick a diverse group of theater professionals. So they will have some producers, some artistic directors, designers, choreographers, directors, performers. And every three years, there you, you serve a three-year term. So as people roll out, they roll in a person who kind of matches that the model. I think I just happened to hit a year where a female choreographer was rolling out and they needed a female choreographer to roll in. So I just got lucky. It happened at the same moment that I got the IU position and came here. So I've been doing a lot of flying back and forth to New York to fulfill the requirements of being on the committee, which is that you see every single show that opens on Broadway. Wow. And it's really a thrilling experience. You get wonderful seats and you get to see the entire span of the season from beginning to end, plays as well as musicals. And then you keep notes uh, on everything you've seen. And then at the end of the season, you get this big printout and you start to go back through your notes and figure out who you're going to choose and, you know, who you're going to vote for. And then you go into the big nominating committee and you're in a huge table with about 30 people, I think, were about on the nominating committee, 30, 35, something like that. There's zero discussion. You sit around, you make your votes. You leave, and the next day you find out who's nominated. <laughs> so it's a very fair process. That was very nice to find out that it was such a fair process. Well, a terrific experience for you. Really fun. It's really well, great. Well, it's, it's time now for our second music selection, and what have you got? I have Lullaby in Ragtime, which is sung in this version by Barbara Cook, and the arrangement is by a wonderful orchestrator, arranger named Wally Harper. Won't you play the music so the cradle can rock to a lullaby? Sleepy hands are creeping to the end of the clock. Play a lullaby, my time. You 
You're listening to Profiles on WFIU, and our guest today is Liza Gennaro. I'm Murray McGibbon. Liza, you've had a very exciting life in theatre, but do you have a life outside of theatre? Not as much as I used to. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'm very blessed to have a fantastic daughter who is really the center of my universe at the moment. And I have a wonderful group of friends in New York that I'm still, you know, very much in contact with and very close to. IU keeps us very busy. (laughs) So a lot of my time is spent doing what I do at IU, which I love. And I love my students at IU and I'm very devoted to them. And then I have lots of other professional projects. So, you know, my life is very, very full in very many ways. What was it like transitioning from the bright lights of Broadway in New York to little old Bloomington, Indiana? You know, the bright lights of New York are fantastic, but I had been there for a really long time. And making the change was, it came at a very good time in my life. My daughter went off to college, and I realized that I really did not need to stay in New York any longer. I could do everything that I do I could do from somewhere else. So when this position came up, I was excited to make the change, and it's been a, it's been really great. I really enjoy my time at Bloomington. You know, New York is intense, and New York is relentless. And after as many years as I fought my way through that city, it's a relief to be out of there, <laughs> I have to say. And I like going back, and I love to—my mother's still there, and I love to see my friends, of course— But the city itself, I have to say, I don't really miss it, amazingly enough. And if you'd asked me, you know, six years ago, you couldn't have gotten me out of there kicking and screaming. But now I really appreciate the lifestyle here, and I love what IU has to offer. And as I said, I love my students so much, and the department, and George Pinney has been such a fantastic person as the head of the musical theater BFA. It's been much less traumatic than I think people (laughs) think it might have been. I've just been working in New York myself and coming back to Bloomington, I just couldn't wait to see the lights of Bloomington. I never thought that would be the case, but it certainly is a a big difference from that teeming metropolis that is relentless, as you say. It is. What are your current activities and interests within the Academy uh, insofar as musical theatre, your own specialization goes? My interest currently is, of course, teaching and, of course, choreographing. But I also have the side of me that's very interested in writing specifically about musical theater dance. And there's been very little writing about musical theater dance because we tend to be the kind of ugly stepsister of the dance department. It's a commercial art form. It's for many, many years been considered and approached as a disposable art form. It's, I think, considered lightweight, and yet there has been no examination of it. So what my kind of mission is, is to write and analyze specifically about the form, its evolution, its history, and its the processes of the choreographers who made dances and make dances for the musical and how that has changed over the years. So I'm currently in the process of working on a book, which I'm very excited about, and um, hopefully I will complete this book and get it published. And I think that if I can do that, it's going to put musical theater dance in a new light in terms of analysis and how to understand how to look at musical theater dance because the role of the musical theater choreographer is very, very different from the role of the concert dance choreographer. 
we are working within a system in which we are collaborators, we are given a script, we have certain parameters that we have to work within, time, place, style, and that makes our work very specific to that form and makes what we do unique in the dance world. The great thing about musical theater that I really love also is that it can absorb any influence. So, you know, when the when the Judson choreographers were working in the 1960s and there was this move toward anti-virtuosic dance, non-virtuosic dance, the show Hair was being produced. And the choreographer who worked on that show was someone who came, you know, was very heavily influenced by Judson. So that kind of work can be absorbed into musical theater, which is one of the things I love about it because it's so diverse. So that's really that's really where my academic interest is in in terms of my scholarship. And then, as I said, my teaching is is just, I love to teach and I love to work with students and I love to do everything from, you know, the specifics of a plie to, you know, what to wear to an audition, dietary needs, you know, I'm I'm a full service (laughs) teacher. So I enjoy, I enjoy all of that and continue to enjoy that. Well, we're very lucky to have you here. I'm very interested to hear that there hasn't been much writing about musical theatre, which I find extraordinary given the fact that musical theatre is you know, such a big thing in the, in the United States. There's so I'm been, sure your book will get a, a really good readership when it does get published. Well, there's been writing on musical theatre, but really no writing on musical theatre dance. That's where they really drop the ball. And the musical theatre writing has probably increased over the last 20 years quite intensely. However, the people who have been writing about musical theater are not focusing on the dance aspect of that, which is a huge portion, particularly in the golden age, which is the period that people tend to look at and write about. If you look at reviews from that period, many of the shows, the the highlights of those reviews are talking about the dance. And interestingly, you know, critics... John Martin, the first string critic on the New York Times, the first dance critic on the New York Times, would devote entire columns to just talking about the dance within a musical. So it was pretty. It's a was a pretty amazing period, and it is kind of stunning that it has not been examined. You have a brother who's also involved in professional theater in America. Is he also a performer? My brother was a performer. He started late, well, not late. He he went to Notre Dame, interesting that he was also in Indiana. He, in his senior year, discovered that he might like to act. He had never shown any interest in theater up until then. And he did act for a while, but then decided that what he was going to do was get his law degree, which he did. He became an attorney, and he worked in theatrical law. And then decided he didn't like that and started managing theaters. So he was down at Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C. He was at Steppenwolf for many years as the executive director. And he's currently at the Goodspeed Opera House in East Haddam, Connecticut. Does your daughter, Fiona, have any theatrical aspirations? Or do you subscribe to Sir Noel Coward's advice of don't put your daughter on the stage, Mrs. Worthington? I, I subscribe to Noel Coward. Uh, fortunately, my daughter does not have an interest in performing. She did dance a bit. Um, as she always says to me, she did it for grandma because my mother always loved for everyone to dance. So Fiona did dance for a while, um, took some ballet classes, and was actually part of a wonderful creative dance program in New York uh, taught by a woman named Ellen Robbins, which was just a great program. Um, but she has not shown any interest in actually performing, pursuing anything in terms of acting. She is very artsy. She draws. Um, she's interested in interior design. And she likes to write. So she definitely got the art gene, but she didn't get the uh, show business gene. <laughs> Liza, where do you see the musical theater genre going in the foreseeable future? What trends and influences are you seeing at work? Well, I think that there's some really fascinating stuff going on now. It, I think it began in the 90s with Spring Awakening, and then that kind of evolved into a show like Once, in which 
the choreography is working narratively, but it's kind of an abstract narrative, which is very fascinating, very new, very fresh. Now we have on Broadway, which I haven't had a chance to see yet, uh, Hamilton, which is danced through. It's using contemporary music. It's rap-infused, I would, I would say. And it seems to be, from what I can tell, and I've listened to the album and seen some clips, danced and sung through. So I think that the three, you know, acting, dancing, singing as the three elements of musical theater production are just coming together more and more and more and fusing into one. Of course, this puts an enormous amount of pressure on performers because the triple threat, which is the classic dancer, singer, actor, now also has to play an instrument, be a circus performer. I mean, it just goes on and on what these kids have to do. And in training them, it's very helpful that I do see so much theater as I see because I really do know what they need to be able to execute. Even a show like Curious Incident of the Dog, which is a play, has an enormous amount of movement in it. What's going on on Broadway, there are some standard, straightforward shows like you would expect, but I'm feeling like Broadway is in a really fantastic place right now, much more creative than it's been in a long time. I don't know if the if the producers have caught up with the audiences or the audiences have caught up with the producers, but somehow it's broken open and there seems to be more risk-taking, which I'm very excited about. What is the average life of the musical theater comedy star? I mean, is, is there an answer to that? Uh, you know, like ballet dancers have to retire fairly early on in their careers. Is it possible for a musical theater person to carry on forever? Well, if we use Cheetah Rivera as the example, <laughs> she just she's 82, I think, and she just performed in The Visit last season. And I know they're doing a tour. I don't know if she's going on tour with them, but, you know, she's spectacular and still an extremely strong and wonderful presence on stage. So, you know, I think you really, the life can go on and on. It's not the classical ballet in which, you know, if you can make it to 40, you've done a you know miraculous job I think the life can go on and on and you also in the theater I think have the opportunity to morph into your or age into the different character roles so that there's more opportunity to age with the within the field and is it possible to make a living only out of musical theater or do performers need to be more diverse in the Well, this is something we struggle with with our students because we are training some really spectacularly talented kids and sending them off to New York, and it's a highly competitive world there. Of course, Chicago is also an excellent option. There's fantastic theater going on in Chicago as well as Los Angeles um, and across the country. I mean, the regional theater now is really booming, I think. There's great theaters all around the country where people can work and do quality work. I think that, yes, you can make a living. There are lots of tours happening, but, you know, you don't enter the theater to have a you know, security. <laughs> it's a tough life. And if that's what you want, then do not enter the theater because it is not secure. And the more hats you can wear, the better off you are. You have to be able to whatever. And I advise my students, if you're interested in directing, learn to direct, create your own projects. If you're interested in writing, create your own project. You have to be highly self-motivated. Start a theater company. You know, write music flesh it out. You can't, I don't think you can any longer just be a performer. I think you have to be able to do every aspect. And I also advise my students, go and have a crappy experience doing a show somewhere. Don't wait for the perfect job to come along. Work breeds work. And these students have to get out there and just take everything that comes their way. And then they will be successful. Those that have the grit and tenacity to stick that out will be successful. Laza, tell us about your last music selection. My last selection is Call of the Sea, which is from a show called No No Nanette, which was a revival of a 1920s show that was produced in the 70s. 
and it's um, just a really fun musical theater dancing number with a fantastic orchestration. Well, this will be our last music selection, which will bring us to the conclusion of this interview. Our guest today was Liza Gennaro, dancer, choreographer, and musical theater scholar. Liza, thank you so much for spending time with us today and for sharing your thoughts and ideas about your world of theater with our WFIU audience. I'm sure they were all very interested. I'm Murray McGibbon for Profiles, and thanks for listening. When the sea begins a calling me, a sort of tempting incantation fills me with elation. It seems to say, come out and play, come along and learn that old, old song of love's sweet fascination. Something fills me with a thousand thrills when the sea is calling me. Ladies, dash about, splash about, where the breakers roar. Girlies, stroll about, roll about, on the sandy shore. Daintily showing all their beauties, frolicking, frolicking, sweet patooties. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles.